Welcome to T-Simple Podcast. We focus on providing simple solutions in the classroom. I have the amazing Shirley Becker. She is, the, oh my gosh, like this is going to be my first, this is, oh, I'm messing with my words right now. This is going to be my most viewed uh, podcast right now. I have a scientist, a former teacher, uh, uh, international, just, just, just a uh, pioneer. Uh, she is a graduate entry medical student at Cambridge University. Uh, from Enfield, uh, she's from Enfield, England, correct? Correct. Great, I'm in the UK. Uh, she uh, used to be a teacher at Lee Valley High School for one year. Uh, she also has some, you know, some economics. Some uh, She worked in uh, risk management and helped with that uh, at Tide. Uh, she was a financial advisor, worked in a lab like me. You are definition of a renaissance lady. Welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Thank you so much. Thank you for the lovely introduction. I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here today uh, and to talk a little bit about science with you. So I'm pumped. Let's get it. Let's get it. Man, man. Uh, did you like the introduction? Because I, I really had to make sure I said you were right. <laughs> I wish I had a recording myself of the snippet and just replay it every morning as my alarm. That was really lovely. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. So again, Teach Simple Podcast, um, we're trying to provide simple solutions for teachers but also educators. And we know during this pandemic, parents became educators, right? They had to literally, you know, do homeschooling within a matter of weeks. And it was a disaster, right? Uh, it, was, it was a lot. A lot of kids struggled with that. A lot of parents struggled with that. Um, and another dynamic I learned about this year is that there is a huge conflict with pop culture or just regular human culture and science. Right. Um, so let's talk about how we met. Right. So we met at Clubhouse. Um, we didn't actually talk, but I was in a conversation and the title of the conversation was, uh, I believe, uh, are vaccines, are black people going to get it? I don't know if I was. Yeah. Something like black people, are we going to get the vaccine? Right. Right. And it was a plethora of uh, intellects, scholars, uh, thought provokers. But most importantly, it was a lot of uh, healthcare professionals. And you are a healthcare professional and you were giving your two cents. You want to maybe just kind of talk about the conversation real quick? Yes. Yeah, so um, I entered the room on Clubhouse. And as we said, it, the title was um, about black people and their opinions on the vaccine. Um, and I actually entered the room, obviously, as someone who's been studying science for a really long time, feeling as though my mind might be confined to sciences only. And there might be voices and opinions that I haven't considered. Yeah. Um, and upon entering the room, I really saw that there were two camps, people who were scientists who were healthcare professionals and who were kind of pro-vaccine and then the other side wasn't so much what I expected which were people who were hesitant and had questions but instead it was people who very much were against the idea of vaccine um, and somewhat against the idea of science and medicine um, and for me that was immediately concerning because I saw that in a lot of their thoughts and ideologies, although I feel it was valid to have concerns, some of those concerns came from incorrect information or misinterpreted information. And that's sort of how I became passionate about contributing my own knowledge to the conversation. Man, and you broke it down, sis, I must say. You broke it down. You broke it down. And then real quick, let me teach you the affirmations. So I did this with my students. So we got three affirmations in Mr. Nellum's class. You can do a snap. Yeah. So, you know, that's like a poetry snap. I don't know if you've ever been to like an open mic or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you can do it like a, you know, a nice little golf clap. So, yeah. just a, you know, the, or you can raise the roof. And the raise the roof is like, oh, man, you said something that was really thought provoking, <laughs> something that was really amazing. So I love you can that. do whatever you want, but you'll see me doing those things. So just so you know. 
Okay. Thank you. Thanks. So, so let's talk about it, right? So as a teacher, I feel that you automatically have to be passionate, right? Because you're not getting paid enough, right? Sure. But that passion is really, that's how your kids learn because you love what you are teaching them, right? Absolutely. When you was a kid, you was like, man, I can't wait till I get this knowledge, give it to somebody else and to see how they, you know, to see how they respond to it. Absolutely. So where did your passion for science come from growing up? Was it an educator? Was it a phenomenon that happened? For me, yeah. it was me seeing three shooting stars. I saw three shooting stars in a matter of 10 minutes with Milky Way all glossed over. That's what inspired me to go into physics. What about you? Well, I feel that so many people have such beautiful stories in terms of how they got into sciences. For me, it was actually um, having a phenomenal teacher myself who was just so able to break down concepts and make science make sense that I just fell in love with the sense that science made. Um, I feel that his passion for teaching uh, and the way he was able to teach us also meant that science became one of my best subjects. And so choosing to go down the science route was a combination of where my interests now lie, what makes the most sense, and also just what am I good at? So um, that teacher being such an inspiration for the trajectory my life then took or also was in part the reason that I later on in life decided to become a teacher myself because I wanted to have that influence on other students. Wow, you wanna, uh, you wanna turn your light back on? Yeah, so it's, it's a, like a panel light. Oh. Okay. So this, <laughs> this podcast, is it like recorded by- I can cut it out, okay. I can cut it out, you good. Okay. <laughs> Let me, let me grab another light and put it around here. But when people view the podcast, they can see audio and uh, image, right? It's not, it's not public or nothing like that, so I'm just going to cut it out. Okay. Yep. So, but yes, audio and image, yes. Okay, fine. Um, one second. Bear with me one second. Yep. Yeah, this is great. Yeah. Yeah, this is really good. How you feel so far? Yeah, it feels fine so far. Yeah, I want you to shout out that teacher's name if you can too. Really oh, definitely. If he or she is shout out. Let's see. This is better. A bit awkward lighting, but is this okay? Yeah, it's perfect. Okay, so we'll start again from where I picked off. So, yeah, this is my absolute favorite teacher, and I've never forgotten him, Martin Cassidy. Until this day, even though he was my teacher maybe over 10 years ago now, I message and email him to update him on my life because I genuinely feel the trajectory my life took, I owe to him. Um, and so every step of the way, I'm just like, I'm a teacher now, I'm a medical student now, and it's, it's because of you. So props to Martin Cassidy. <laughs> Mr. Uh, is Cassidy? He definitely deserves it, Mr. Cassidy. Let's get it. Let's get it, Mr. Cassidy. So then, so what happened after Mr. Cassidy's class? So was that like a junior, senior level class? So talk about that process from, from high school to Cambridge and science. Like, what was that? What was it like being a, um, a young uh, black professional in STEM? Mm -hmm. And what was your, like, you know, what was your, like, was it, was it, so for me, it was physics. Yeah. Was it biology, chemistry? Was it like, what was your niche? And kind of like talk about that process through Cam Cambridge. 
Yeah, so Mr. Cassidy was actually my biology teacher. Um, and biology didn't actually end up being my favorite subject. But one thing I really took away from his class was his method in approaching science and his method in approaching exams surrounding science. And I kind of applied this method to my other science classes, to my maths class, um, and sort of all the subjects that are slightly related. Um, but it was actually chemistry that I absolutely fell in love with. I can't even begin to explain what it is. For me, chemistry just makes beautiful sense. Um, and when you're able to explain concepts within chemistry, because it's one of the subjects that people find difficult, but when you're able to really understand it and make it really simple and explain it to people, I just think it's a beautiful subject. Um, and so chemistry kind of became my passion. So in the UK, when you're 16, you take exams. Um, but at this time, you're not a specialist in any sense. So you take an exam in pretty much every single subject there is. Um, and then you refine your subjects down to four. And at this point, I chose all of the sciences. So biology, chemistry, physics, maths. Um, and I sat exams again when I was 18. And these are the exams that you take to go to university. When it came to my school, um, my school is actually not one of the best performing schools at all. So Enfield in of itself isn't um, an area that has the best schools in England by any means at all. And my school ranked number 17 out of 18 possible schools in all of Enfield. Um, and so when it came to sending people off to university, my school had a really good record for sending people to university in general, but not a very good record sending people to the best institutions. In the UK, there are kind of two that top the league table, the University of Oxford and the University of Cambridge. And I was interested in going to Cambridge. And this is kind of a whole story in of itself, which I can address. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so essentially, University of Cambridge at my school wasn't really a university that people often aim to go to because, again, it was just not within our culture to aim for elite institutions. But my school did take us on a trip to Cambridge um, and we walked around and the buildings, the buildings themselves are kind of mesmerizing um, and you kind of know that this is kind of the big deal, right? Um, but one teacher, just one teacher turned around at me, to me and said, um, if you really want to aim, aim for this. And then I kind of had a very naive mind at the time. I just thought, okay, the teacher's telling me this is the best, so I'll go here, I guess. Like, I had no concept of what it meant to go to somewhere like Cambridge at the time. Um, but from that moment on, which happened when I was 14, so four years away from the point where I actually have to make a decision, um, I had already decided that I was going to go to Cambridge um, and I actually feel that the naivety and not having all of the worries and concerns prevalent in my mind helped me to just go for it because I wasn't scared. I wasn't fearful. I didn't have an idea or a concept that this was unachievable because I was simply just so naive, which meant that I wasn't scared to put in an application. I wasn't scared to get interviewed. And I didn't at any point think that I was incapable of achieving the correct grades. So I actually thank my naivety at the time for giving me sort of the um, courage um, to, to apply for an institution like this. Um, what are your parents like? What are my parents like? Um, so my parents both were born in Ghana and they both kind of had the American dream, which is prevalent in, in a lot of countries in Africa where they kind of feel that moving to Europe um, allows better life chances for you and better life chances for your children. So they both had the mentality that 
I will move to Europe before I have children and my children will have an easier life than I, than I will ever have. Um, so they moved at the age of 21 <laughs> without money, without a jacket, because they didn't know that outside of Africa it's really cold, um, and one pair of shoes. Um, and they kind of made a life for themselves here. And I suppose they still carry that mentality If my children will at all costs have a better life than I had. So for them, the number one thing is education. They're really big on sending all of their kids to schools um, and doing everything that they can so that the only concern in our lives is school. They don't want us to worry about um, what we're going to eat, what, what clothes we have. They just want to make our life um, as good as possible around school so that the only thing, only stress in our lives is school. Um, and that's the only thing we need to think about. So both my parents are pretty much like, please just do good in school. Please just do good in school. But they don't self, they don't, sorry, themselves have a really good concept of what exams you really do at school, what doing well at school looks like or what it takes because they yeah. didn't have the opportunity to, to go through school in the same way that I did. Yeah. But they know that Europe, good schools, please do well because I came to Europe for this. So that's, that's kind of the mentality they have. Wow. So I wanna, my next question I want to ask about like your passion and kind of talk a little bit more about like your, uh, your professional work. So like after your undergrad to like where you are now, do you want to talk about you know, how that passion, you know, is needed to be responsible during these times. Yeah. So we're talking about information. We're especially talking about giving people the vaccines mm -hmm. and genuine about it. But before I do that, I just want to talk a little bit about, um, about something you said. So you say your parents, right, they didn't have professional training, but mm -hmm. they had self-determination, right? 100%. Right. So that's just something as black people of the African diaspora, that's just what we have inherently mm -hmm. because of our oppression, because of our exploitation, no matter what they try to do, no matter what they try to do with our minds, our self-determination is what, what fuels our motivation and our aspirations and everything else. And I say that to say because um, during the, uh, like right when the Emancipation Proclamation happened, you know, it was illegal for slaves to read, right? Yeah. And so there's this book called uh, Black Educations in the South by uh, Dr. James Anderson from 1865 to 1935. Okay. And essentially what the book talks about is how pretty much black people started public education in America and how their self-determination mm -hmm. is what perpetuated a uh, public, uh, public school system in the South. So, for example, okay. mm -hmm. uh, for example, and then I'm going to get to talking about your passion. So, for example... Right when slavery ended, it took them seven years, seven years to teach themselves how to read, how to write. Within that seven years, that was the greatest acquisition of literacy. They built schools, black people. They built uh, uh, churches. They had, the great, they had a hard, large teaching force. They literally, with that self-determination, pretty much started their own school system after, uh, after slavery ended. And flipped it all around in seven years, essentially. Yep. In seven years. Seven years. And slavery was a long time. Yeah. But, but because they, they were so, it was pushed down on them so much, they always wanted it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I just want to say that your father, you are everything your father dreamed of. Just from me meeting you, you are definitely doing what your dad dreamed of. And he's very proud of you, for sure. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. That's really nice. That's really nice of you to say. I appreciate that. So, so what's your passion? Like, what are you passionate about and how does science connect with that? Okay, so what my passions are currently actually, well, obviously I'm studying medicine. So everyone who studies medicine, someone has a, a, a passion for contributing to the healthcare uh, of others. Specifically within medicine, I'm actually really passionate about OBGYN related things. Um, and I think that I would really love to see a change in the way that women's healthcare um, and women's sexual health, fertility um, is addressed from um, a much younger age, because I kind of have this idea that women, um, especially in, in the 21st century, build themselves to be everything that they feel they need to be before they can be a parent, right? They go through education, they get the best job, they get a promotion, they get a husband, they get a home, and then they start trying to have a family. And for some women, unfortunately, it's only at that point, once they've done and contributed their entire life to that endeavor, that they then find out that there are complications associated with having a family. Um, and it might be particularly difficult for them. And I think this can be so life shattering for some women. And I'm just very interested in the extent to which we can address fertility and investigate fertility especially preventative things when it comes to um, fertility issues at a younger age, such that a woman is able to implement these ideas into her life before she contributes her entire life to having a family and finding out then at that point that she can't or finding out at that point that maybe she should have had a different lifestyle in terms of, I don't know, smoking or diet um, that would have made it easier to have a family. So that's kind of what I'm interested in. And then also complicated pregnancies because they're much more prevalent than I think a lot of people imagine. So things like miscarriages. And I think by not talking about them at all, um, every woman that kind of undergoes these things has the potential to feel so alone um, and then kind of think about how maybe it's their fault or how, how could this happen to me? And I see everyone else with a baby. And then to find out that actually it's a large percentage of women that will undergo a miscarriage at some point in their life. But how are you to know if these aren't very transparent conversations or these aren't things that, you know, when you're taught, this is how people have sex, you're also taught, oh, by the way, when people have sex, these things can happen and these complications can occur. Um, because if everyone kind of has the idea that they are common and they're normal, then I think it can do... It can, it can evoke a very big difference on the mental health issues that might be linked to people that experience these things. Um, because, you know, our experiences are just what, what we think is normal and what we think is abnormal. Uh, and the more we think something is abnormal and only happening to us, the more of a tendency it might have to impact us negatively. So, so that's, that's my specific passion within medicine. And we need that education to distinguish between the normal and the abnormal. Uh, absolutely 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 wow so that's another podcast i would love to like mm -hmm. really dig deeper into what you just said because there are mm -hmm. a lot of people including myself that can definitely um we need that education so we can deal with that plight mm -hmm. absolutely so 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 let's so now let's talk about um so covid19 right so covid19 yeah was heavily politicized in America. I don't know how it was for you in the UK. We were really, we were going, like, so literally when it started, everybody was kind of on the same page and the cases were really, you know, reasonable. 
in comparison to what they are now. <laughs> right. Um, and politics, misinformation, disrespect for education, science. One thing I would say about that clubhouse group is that there was a lot of disrespect on people that had degrees. And I just want to say that your work is appreciated. And I'm so sorry that that dynamic was present there. There are a lot of, she said, quote unquote, hood degrees uh, there. <laughs> you know? And it's, it's just so sad that that, excuse my language, that shit perpetuates mm -hmm. just the audacity of people to feel like they know what the hell they talk about. And they don't. And it's literally killing people. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really tricky situation. I think there was a lot of people that felt that just because we don't have degrees doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a voice or we shouldn't be able to contribute to a conversation. And I absolutely agree with that. I don't think that um, a specific degree in a specialism means that your voice um, is superior than that of others. I, I agree that I absolutely do not support the disrespect that, mm. that meant that some of us who did have degrees um, had. I think, yeah, again, I think a lot of the tension just arose from this assumption that the other people felt that we automatically thought we were better than them just because we had degrees. And really the only thing we wanted to do was to share the things that we, we did learn throughout our degree just to be able to kind of minimize the amount of concern or validate or invalidate some of the concerns. So, so what are some myths and facts can you give about COVID-19 and the vaccine for the people in Detroit so they can take that information and yeah. really, you know, make a really responsible decision? Right. So I think one of the biggest myths that I took away from just the clubhouse conversation itself um, isn't, isn't necessarily a myth in that it holds no substance at all. It's that what people think about this idea that I'm going to speak about the, the specific thing they think about this is kind of warped. So this idea that the vaccine's aim is to deliver a message to the body, um, and this message is kind of program, programming the body to do something that it doesn't naturally do. And I think this is kind of the, the biggest misconception that I took away from, from the Clubhouse um, conversation. And I think it stemmed from the fact that a lot of people know, obviously the vaccine that Pfizer uh, created um, and AstraZeneca, I believe as well, mm -hmm. contains something called mRNA. And this stands for messenger RNA. And for people, they think, wow, messenger RNA, message, a message is entering the body. The body is getting instructions of what to do and they can code anything and get the body to do absolutely anything it wants and manipulate right. us and so on and so forth. Yes, mRNA does deliver some sort of message to the body, but the message that mRNA delivers to the body is very specific. And it delivers a message, essentially, and we'll go into it a little bit more when I go into an explanation of the how, how the vaccine works. But the message that this mRNA delivers to the body is essentially to make a protein in the absence of the virus, so not the virus itself, just one component of the virus, which is a protein that won't harm you if the virus itself is not there, in order for the body to be able to recognize that as foreign and build a specific immune response to that protein, such that if it ever encounters that protein again, for example, when you really do become infected by the virus, it already has cells ready to destroy it. Because for every disease that we get infected with, our body actually amounts an immune response that's specific for that disease. Right. So 
when you get the chicken pox, there's a different cell that attacks the chicken pox, uh, chicken pox disease. And when you get HIV, it's a different cell that attacks HIV disease. And so what the message in the messenger RNA is, is essentially make a protein so that you get exposure to the protein without getting exposure to the virus so that you can have an attack ready if you ever see the virus again. And he was like, but that, that protein, what, what is that protein? What, yeah. What's in that protein? It might be rats in it. I'm like, bro. Yeah. So the, there are definitely no rats in it. But if we talk about what the protein is, um, so the protein, and again, this will make a lot more sense when I talk just in general about how the vaccine works. Yeah, essentially this protein is a cell surface protein and all that means is it is on the surface, so on the outside of a cell. And the cell that we're talking about is the virus. Um, and this protein is really important for allowing the virus to enter and invade our, our own human cells, so our health, healthy cells that we want to protect, right? But this protein can only really work if it has the entire virus. Um, to help it, right? But the protein on its own is just a protein that can do nothing because it's not attached to a virus. Um, but that cell surface protein is really important to allow the virus to do what viruses do, which is invade our cells. Um, and so, yes, the messenger RNA will get our body to express that protein for a short period of time, yeah. which on its own, it can't do anything because we know that that protein will also be present if the virus infects you. But then when it tries to, we already have all the cells to destroy it. So, um, so that's, that's what the protein is essentially. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and we're giving, uh, we're giving the people a little, well, go ahead. You're about to go ahead and explain it. So talk about just pretty much how the vaccine works. What are mm -hmm. the side effects? Whether, again, what are some worries people are having? Okay. Maybe you dispel some of the bell palsy um, yeah. articles that people have been talking about and just kind of like, give people the facts. Okay. So I think at this point, it'd be a good, a good point to um, explain how the vaccine works, right? So in order to understand how the vaccine works, I think it's useful to kind of start from what do viruses do? And then we can understand what did we do when it comes to the vaccine and why that makes sense to stop doing virus, stop viruses from doing what viruses do. So viruses, um, I, this is going to be very similar to my explanation on Clubhouse, but for the sake of your audience who haven't heard it, um, it should be fine. So viruses don't have any sort of brains, right? They don't think consciously. They don't know um, what they're doing in life. They're pretty pre-programmed to do one thing and one thing only. Um, and that is to enter our human cells or enter another animal cells, but these are all called hosts. So whoever gets infected with something is called a host because they're hosting a virus, right? So the virus enters a host and it enters our cells. So our entire body is made up of cells uh, and we want to keep them nice and healthy. But the virus enters it. And the reason it needs to enter it is because once it's inside the cell, it's able to duplicate. So one virus becomes two, two become four, four become eight, and so on. And it will do this and do this and do this until there are hundreds and hundreds of cells, um, viral cells, and then your healthy cell basically explodes, allowing all those hundreds of viruses to find a hundred new host cells within your body and do the same thing. So you can see that this quickly becomes a very big problem. Um, after a while, you end up having where you started with one, you now have millions and millions of viral cells going around, right? 
um, but they're programmed to do this, so they don't think consciously. And in order to do this, they kind of need components to help them do so, because a virus can't just magically enter a cell um, without having something to help it to do it. And a, a virus can't just magically duplicate itself without having something um, that helps it to do it. So the things that help viruses to do these things are proteins, specific proteins that do specific jobs. One of those proteins will be on the outside of the virus, and this will be a protein that allows it to um, enter our cells. So different viruses do this by different ways, but it kind of tricks the cell to open itself up and allow the virus to come inside. And then the second thing that we spoke about is the duplication of viral cells, right? And in order to do this, either the virus itself will have all of the proteins necessary to kind of copy its genetic material and copy the whole cell and make a new one, or it will hijack our cells, our cell system to uh, duplicate itself because our cells are also constantly duplicating themselves. That's how we grow. That's how we make new skin. When our skin falls off, that's how we heal because we're constantly making new cells. So either the virus will have its own machinery to do this, or it will just hijack our machinery, who's conveniently doing it anyway. Um, and then, yeah, we get the duplication, our healthy cell explodes, and then we have lots of viruses that can repeat, repeat, repeat. repeat. Right? So now we kind of understand how the vir- what the virus does. We can begin to understand how the vaccine works. So in general, vaccines work by introducing something that looks like a virus or looks like a component of a virus so that you build an immune response towards it, right? In this case, we isolated COVID-19. We looked at COVID-19 and we're like, well, we know exactly how viruses work, but every virus has its own protein. Every virus has its own machinery. We need to know exactly what that machine and protein looks like for COVID-19 so that we can specifically have a vaccine that works for COVID-19 because we can't use the vaccine for chicken pox or something um, because it won't work for COVID-19 because COVID has its own proteins, right? And it thought, okay, what protein is one of the most important ones that allows COVID-19 to do its job and do what it does? And that protein was the cell surface protein because this protein is the protein that allows it to enter our cells in the first place, right? Right? So... This, we know, is a very important protein. Um, And what we did is we looked at the code for this protein. And when we talk about coding for ourselves, we usually talk about DNA because all of our genetic material is written in DNA. Um, This DNA that we have actually gets converted into something called mRNA and then gets converted into proteins, right? For viruses, some viruses just skip the whole DNA part and just think, I know that I'm going to change into mRNA anyway, so why don't I just have mRNA so that I don't have to have this whole conversion step? So that's why COVID-19 has mRNA in it. So we looked at the mRNA coding for just the protein, not the whole virus, just the protein. um, And we took this coding and kind of duplicated it and duplicated it and duplicated it, knowing that if we put that code inside a human cell, the human cell would do what it would do if it had its own natural mRNA that came from our DNA. And that is that it gets another protein that exists in our cells to read this mRNA. And once it reads the mRNA, it creates the protein that the mRNA is instructing it to create. So again, we said the important protein was the one on the outside. We've now taken the mRNA code for this protein, put it inside of a cell, And our human cell says, hey, I see mRNA, no harm here. There's normally mRNA hanging around anyway. 
let me read it and make the protein that it's telling me to make. So it makes this cell surface protein. And then this is what, where we get an immune response kicked in. So I just said that we have DNA, gets converted into mRNA, and then it makes proteins. This, in our eyes, it would make the protein that's responsible for our eye color. In our hair, it would make the proteins that's responsible for hair growth, right? Um, so our cells read the mRNA, make the protein, but our body also constantly has other cells going around. And all this other cell does is it binds to all the proteins that are being made just to double check that that protein is supposed to be there. If there's something wrong with that protein, it will destroy it. But also if it's a protein that it knows you were not born with, then it will also destroy it. So we've now made this protein that belongs to COVID-19 and the cells come around and bind to everything, binds to the proteins in your eye and you're like, yep, yep, that's your eye color that's supposed to be there. Binds to the protein of COVID-19 and says, hold up, wait a minute, this is not supposed to be here. Right. It then attaches a label to that protein and that label is essentially, we are going to kill you. So <laughs> there are lots of other cells involved in this now that then um, are developed to have a specific shape that is perfect for that foreign protein so that it can bind to it and get other cells to essentially engulf it and eat it up and destroy it so that it's not harmful to you and it can't, it can't infect you. So when the real COVID-19 affects you, exactly the same thing happens. The cell, um, these cells that are responsible for double checking, sees the protein that's attached to COVID-19, binds to it and says, hold up, you were not born with this protein. And that's how we end up recovering from something like COVID-19 because our body builds the cells to destroy everything that has that, that damn protein that doesn't belong to our bodies, right? Yes. So in mRNA, um, the mRNA vaccine, we introduce that protein on its own, which by itself can't, can't act like a virus acts because the entire virus isn't there. But what it can do is trick your body into finding a protein and discovering a protein that's not supposed to be there so that you build those exact same attack cells that you would build if you were to be infected with COVID-19. Um, so you've now built all of the attack cells. And what's great about our body is it will destroy all of those proteins that are not supposed to be there, but it will never forget. It won't forget that once upon a time, I saw this protein that was not supposed to be here. And so what happens is if you ever become infected with that same protein again, this time, this protein present with the entire virus um, in COVID-19, your body already has all of its killer cells ready to fight. And so there isn't a delay between when you encounter COVID-19 and when your body is ready to fight because it's already got all the cells ready. It's that delay that allows people to become sick. So when your body has to make all of these killer cells, the virus has time to duplicate and duplicate. And at the start, we already saw how quickly this become, can become out of hand, right? right? So without that delay, it means that your body can destroy any COVID-19 that enters your body before it gets bad. And that's why vaccines are such a great idea. Essentially, they're exposing you to either a protein in this case, and the mRNA vaccine is new because normally what we do is we kind of inject you with a dead form of the virus so that the virus isn't active and can't harm you, but it still carries all its proteins to let your body just um, get used to all of the proteins that are involved. This time we just said, let's just cut straight to the chase. What's the most important protein that your body will recognize anyway? Let's just take that one on its own instead of 
giving you the entire virus, let's just take the one protein because your body is going to react in the same way and give you the same protection. Um, and so it's a pretty neat technology. Um, and that's, that's, that sounds like biomedical engineering, right? Exactly. Right. That's, that's how GMOs are created. Yeah. So it's like, it's, um, it's a, just the concept of looking at um, genetic information and instructions within genetic information and kind of manipulating that concept. Uh, and, 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 and like, I'm sure biomedical engineering has been around such a long time, you know, but it could be so foreign, but uh, uh, it was a cool analogy of uh, Barack Obama. He said that walk from the corner to another corner and you're going to, you're going to pretty much uh, walk over 50 things that the government does, right? There's so many things that affect us that we just don't know. Mm-hmm. And because we don't have the education to fill in that gap, we fall victim to misinformation. Mm-hmm. So then could you talk about the, 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 the worry that, why, is, why was it made so fast? How was it able to be created yeah. so yeah. fast? Could you maybe just talk about that? Because this is like, ha, they, didn't, they didn't build, they didn't find the cure for cancer, they didn't find the cure yeah. for all yeah. of this, so how did they get it for the vaccine? There's got to be something in it. And this is, this is a concern that I think is completely valid. And I myself came to a point where I thought, hold on, every time they've spoken about creating a vaccine, it's taken years and years. Like, how have we done this so quick? Are we sure that it's safe? And so I myself had to do a lot of investigating, a lot of questioning, a lot of, a lot of reading to find out the answer for myself. And what I came to learn was that ordinarily when we create vaccines, we create vaccines for things that are problematic, um, but not so problematic, right? And so this world is unfortunately driven by the economy. Sometimes I think people, when they think about government, they just think like the government should do it. The government needs money from somewhere. You can't just print money, otherwise you get hyperinflation and we're back to what happened in Germany many, many years ago, right? Like people's work, people's time costs money. Someone at the end of the chain is paying for this. And so in the past, it's always been a balance of sourcing the funds um, and the urge and the, the, how, how, how necessary it is to, to source the funds versus the size of the problem, right? Because there's a finite budget. If you have a million pounds and it's going to cost 900,000 to sort this one problem out, um, where are you going to get that other 500,000 from to sort another problem out that might be education or something like that? Right. So there's always been a budgeting issue. Um, and so in the past, what's happened is that there essentially haven't been the funds available to just keep paying people, the people who are in the background doing the research, the people are in the background trying to find the genetic code, the people in the background who are um, trying to isolate the COVID-19 virus and so on and so forth. In the past, it's been a case of the companies go out and ask people for money and ask people for money, you know, like even things like GoFundMe pages, no one is donating. And until they hit their target, they can't move on and pay the people and so a lot of the time delay in the past has actually been um stagnations in progress because they're waiting for more funding and once they get it then they can do the next bit and once they get it then you can do the next bit you know like i think it's useful to remember that at the end of the day it's people like it could have been myself that just my day job is to go to a lab and work out genetic coding of things and if I don't get paid, I'm not going to work, you know? And it's the people like that that are the ones that are in the lab every day working out the genetic code. It's not people who decide like, oh, out of the good of my heart, I'm just going to work for free. People have kids, people have mortgages that they need to pay, you know? Right. Um, 
And so until the funds are available to pay those people, they can't make progress. So in the past, it's taken a really long time because of funding issues. This time, it was kind of a world catastrophe. And I think every single person and their mother realized that this is a worthwhile cause to donate to. Right. So that's why we have people like Bill Gates putting money into it because it's like, this is not a joke. We need to sort this out as quick as possible. And if Shirley's going to refuse to go to the lab without money, then I will give her the money. I will personally give her the money. So there are lots of billionaires and millionaires that are feeling this way. And so this time around, we kind of had unlimited resources in terms of finances. And so people like Shirley were getting paid consistently. And I was able to go to work every day if I was the person in the lab. Um, and so in terms of the steps that were taken to create the vaccine, there were no shortcuts taken. We didn't do the reading of the genetic material any quicker than we would normally do it. We didn't do um, the isolation process any quicker than we would normally do it. It was just that the people who were behind it were able to work consistently because they were getting paid consistently. Right. And so it was the lack of delay that allowed this to be a quick process rather than taking shortcuts and jumping steps. Um, so, um, again, I'm, I'm going to edit this out. So you're doing a phenomenal job of just breaking it down. Like you're doing a, a great job. Um, how much time do you have? Uh, it's like today, I don't have anything going on after this, apart from like uploading a video, but I can do that whenever. Okay, cool. Do you, do you want to like, you want to get some water or anything? Or you want to keep uh, I've got like water here. So, but right, yeah. Cool. Oh, cool. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, 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 could you maybe talk about, so one thing I really loved about the conversation is that the doctor was saying that from the SARS outbreak that happened in the Middle East, the SARS, um, mm -hmm. forgot the, he had like a different name for it, but SARS, yeah, I think that's what it is. COVID too. I think he, he yeah. was, mm -hmm. we, we were able to use a lot of that research to add to what we have now. Is that correct? Yeah. So as I kind of said in my explanation for vaccines, viruses kind of all do the same thing um, when it comes to entering cells and replicating. And so using our knowledge of what viruses do, we don't have to kind of go back to basics and think like, what's this virus doing? We already know that. And the more similar viruses are, the more we know where to look. Because unfortunately, when it comes to say genetic material, uh, if we even look at our own DNA, our own DNA is really, 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 really long in code, right? But not every single letter is important in there. There are huge chunks of our DNA that is just nonsense that doesn't do anything useful for us. And so if I say were to look at your DNA, I would have a good idea of where to look for, let's say, your hair color, because someone has already done that. And you and I are similar enough. In, we're humans. We're both humans, right? So if I know, okay, in order to look for hair color, I need to look at the, the letter that's, let's say, one million basis away. Then I know that for you, I'll start looking around. I'm not going to count from one to million. I'm going to look around one million because I know that, that that was true for the other human. So where SARS-CoV-2 is more similar to COVID-19 than let's say something like HIV. I know that if I'm going to look for important components or look for genetic um, material, I know roughly where to look because they're similar enough to each other. So in that sense, um, we are able to use knowledge of similar viruses um, to gain information about new ones. And again, if we don't know that, Right. If we don't know that there was a SARS outbreak, like uh, I listened to a podcast like literally two weeks when COVID-19 happened. 
and the guy was literally because the guy was asking the uh, he was an epidemiologist. He was like, "Is this the worst outbreak we ever had?" Mm-hmm. He was like, no, this is not the worst outbreak we ever had. Um, but this is something that if we don't change our habits, it can yeah. be worse. But because exactly. of ours, because of what's happened in the Middle East, we can have enough data to understand that these mitigation tactics, these social distancing tactics, we have they, they had data on actually closing schools. Um, and how that actually uh, brought the uh, COVID-19, excuse me, the uh, SARS cases down. And so they were able to use that data to kind of make some of the uh, executive decisions they needed to make. Um, so, yeah. and so, so I have a couple questions. I don't, mm-hmm. don't want to take up too much of your time. I just it's really... Fine. All right, cool. So I'm going to take this one and put it kind of out front, put it in the front of the vaccine conversation. So mm-hmm. I want you to maybe talk about what is COVID-19? And why were the why were the uh, lockdowns necessary? So kind of maybe just talk about like the education of the lockdowns. So mm-hmm. just talk about like it's not about. I mean, obviously, it is about it's about saving lives, but it's also mm-hmm. about making sure we are saving lives with the resources. Because a lot of people don't understand that if we don't have beds, we have to we have to do a lot of immoral things, right? We don't have enough places to put people. Yeah, we have to do a lot of things that we should yeah. do as Americans, and I think that concept wasn't really taught well during the lockdowns. And a lot of people are like, "Oh, I got to sit down for eight weeks," you know. So yeah. maybe yeah. talk about like what is COVID nineteen and kind of not say cop a plea for the politicians on their <laughs> their reasons for doing the lockdowns, but just talk about the purpose of a lockdown and what yeah. it does. And then before you answer that, the last question I'm gonna ask you is just really um, again. What can a, a regular person do to kind of educate themselves on the virus and the vaccine? And so, but forget mm-hmm. that. What is COVID-19 and why were the lockdowns inputted? Yeah. So COVID-19 essentially is a virus, right? Um, and we've spoken a lot about already, like what viruses kind of are, what they do. They're just pre-programmed cells that um, invade us and infect us, right? Um, and COVID-19 is, 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 is definitely an example of this. Um, it's transmitted through coughs most of the time uh, and in water droplets. So every time someone coughs or every time someone talks, uh, those water droplets might contain um, samples of the virus and then you're able to kind of inhale it or get it on your fingers and you know touch any entry route so that could be your nose it can even be your eyes it could be your genitals anything that is an entry route into your body um, has the potential to kind of allow viruses to enter from the outside of your skin and to what's underneath your skin um, so that's kind of like a very, very, very like distant overview um, of what, what, what COVID-19 is. And when it comes to things like COVID-19 and any other viruses, it shouldn't be like, I, I hear a lot of people say things like, this must have been created in a lab. Like, how can something just infect so many people all of a sudden? And it's like, viruses only job is to infect as many people as they can as quickly as they can it's what they are pre-programmed to do and in a world of constant mutations um it's very very it's not it's not unsurprising that um something new will arise and this will not be the last pandemic this won't be the last pandemic whatsoever that something new arises a virus um that we don't already have vaccines for so that you know, because if we had a vaccine for COVID-19 already, if someone coughed 
if, if one person got infected and coughed on everyone else in the world, they just simply wouldn't get sick, right? But right. as soon as a virus comes about that kind of has a playground because no one is immune to it, it will spread rapidly. And that's exactly what's happened here. So it, it's not something unnatural. The virus, from a virus's perspective, this is exactly what is supposed to happen. This is exactly how virus is programmed to work, right? So when we, we've just spoken about transmission methods, um, and essentially knowing that it's so easy to transmit, so even talking to you too closely, um, you know, if, you, if you've ever sort of looked at yourself speaking in the sun, you notice that there's a lot of like spitting that happens when, when people talk, right? So knowing that even such low levels of contact um, allows me to infect other people, it means that the only real solution in a world where we don't have anything to build an immune response, i.e. where we don't already have a vaccine and we don't have a population of people who are already immune to it, is to keep people separate, right? <laughs> and I um, had a conversation with my friends about this um, and I said to them, you know, if we could just get everyone to stay exactly where they are and not move a muscle, we would collectively get rid of this in a matter of weeks but it's not possible to keep the world at a standstill like there have to be doctors who go to work like it's not possible to to literally get everyone to freeze right um but the point the point is we essentially know like every virus has a different sort of um how do i say like an incubation phase and a phase where you are effective to other people and if how long it usually um, causes people to feel unwell for. And for COVID-19, you know, the rules are, might be different in different countries at the moment. If you get a positive test, you're required to self-isolate in the UK for 10 days, which means that there is data to support that after 10 days, you're unlikely to infect other people, right? So um, in theory, that means that if someone um, carries the virus, as long as for those 10 days after the moment they find out, they do not cough, spit, talk to anyone. They are incapable of infecting anyone. And so some people might wonder, okay, well, why don't we just have a rule that only if you're infected with it, do you stay home and everyone else just live their life? The problem is that you don't get immediately unwell the moment that someone with COVID-19 spits on you, right? You right. feel well for a few days until we've done that replication thing enough and then your body starts to say, hold on, something is wrong, we're going to go into shutdown mode and that's when you feel sick. But even though you yourself feel well, once you're infected with it, you have the potential to infect other people. So then the issue becomes that people don't know that they are infected but are capable of infecting other people. And so... We can't just have a rule to say that only the people who know for certain that they have COVID-19 stay home and everyone else goes out because there's a potential for a bunch of those people to have COVID-19 and they're just moments before the moment where they're going to find out, right? So then the strategy has to become that we all keep distant from each other. So we keep socially distant and have moments where we just don't do things where we know we're going to make lots of contact. Like going to a bar, you say, oh, hi to one person. You bump into someone in the toilet. You get a drink off the bartender who like just touched the cup that he's giving you. So many opportunities for someone to infect you. We just simply can't carry those activities on because it's way too many people who don't know that they're sick um, that are able to pass the virus on. Apart from this, some people are asymptomatic. You know, if you think about what would make you think um, of going to test yourself for COVID-19, it's when you start thinking like, hold on, I can't smell anything, I can't taste anything. 
Right. I'm getting fevers, I'm getting aches, and that would prompt you to test. If you're someone who happens to not get those symptoms, because maybe you have a really good immune system that gets rid of it um, quicker than an average person, or you simply happen to be someone who doesn't get adversely reacted by this virus um, in particular, then you will go on for the entirety of the 10 days um, infecting other people. And so this is why we kind of get that rapid spread, because there's a phase that you'll feel well, but you're infected, but you have the potential to infect other people. And then there are lots of people who also might be asymptomatic. So unfortunately, um, unless there was a way for us to tell the instant moment someone became infected, that they had an infection, if we knew that, then yes, we could definitely approach this in a way where those people lock themselves up and everyone else go out. Until we have a technology like that, which we, we, there's no way we'll ever have an instantaneous way of telling. Um, until that point, then unfortunately, it's like we have to be over careful and lock everyone up. And yes, that means that some of those people are going to be healthy people who would have never infected anyone. Yes, some of those people would have been people who have already been infected before and therefore probably won't get infected again. But if we don't, if we aren't over careful, then we will just get the rapid spread that we've been seeing. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I meant by if we were to all just freeze right now in this moment, then there would be a proportion of the population who are sick right now, who after 10 days, hopefully will no longer be able to transmit the disease and they will recover. Um, they might then pass it on. Let's say someone is on their ninth day. They might then pass it on to their mother and their mother is on their first day or whatever. And then, 10 days after that she'll be fine but then at some point everyone would have either like gotten over their sickness or passed it on to the people who they live with and they would have gotten over their sickness but then let's say in two months from from the point that everyone freezes everyone would have overcome the period where they infect other people and so if we were to freeze in theory for two months or so then we would be done but we can't the economy would shut down the healthcare system would shut down education system would shut down and people just don't listen um so <laughs> so yeah it's a challenge unrealistic approach but in theory if we think about the fact that in theory if everyone were to freeze we'd sort the problem out like this it helps you to understand that getting us close to that theory would also help us get back to normal. Um, so that's why lockdowns are necessary. We need to stay away from each other so we can't infect each other. It's, it's and, that and we were doing that um, because it's so divided here in the United States. Only like dem Democratic states were like going down in like July and then mm -hmm. red states were like going up. And then once uh, I believe, once everything just started opening, we just kind of like let it loose and it got too right. out of control and it yeah. just, now it's a now it's a shit show um two last i have two more questions about yeah, of course last question is going to be about the new variant and can the yeah. vaccine um um you know help with that mm -hmm. and then i want you to talk about black people and vaccines and their yeah their superstitions, their real concerns, mm -hmm. and how should they use this interview to help them? Okay, mm -hmm. first question. So first of all, how do you like the question so far? Yeah, I think they're really good and interesting and thought provoking for me as well, so. Yeah, you're doing an amazing job. You're doing a oh, great thank job. thank you. <laughs> so please, uh, you gotta give me a second interview. But anyways, um, so go ahead. What, 
So what is the what is this new variant? Give us give us like a little brief um, description of it, and should we be worried about it? Can the vaccine help it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this new variant. Um, this is one conversation I love having with people because it's re- it's really interesting to address this this new variant. So viruses mutate all the time and i think you know if you don't know what a mutation is and this mutate word sounds really scary but essentially what this means is if we look at genetic coding again for us it's dna for some viruses including covid19 it's mrna that a letter can sometimes um when it copies itself so if you think that there are millions of letters say and there is a machine responsible for saying a make another a T, make another T, uh, C, make another C, U, make another U, that it needs to get that right a million times, right? Right. Um, When every single time it copies. Unfortunately, or fortunately for the virus, which I'll come to, the machine sometimes gets it wrong and will say A, A, T, T, U, U, and we'll get to the millionth one or something, and then we'll say G, and then accidentally write C. And that's a mutation, a change in the code, anywhere along the code, any change is considered a mutation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we know that that mRNA is responsible for making proteins. And we know that the protein that it is made depends on what the code says. So let's say the code says ATTTT makes protein, um, a protein called Sarah, right? Right. Now there's been a mistake. It no longer says ATTTT. It now says ATTTC. Mm-hmm. And now what happens is, a few things can happen. Either it can happen that Sarah, by coincidence, is still made with that code, which means that the mutation is like ineffective, essentially. Or it can mean that we just can't make a protein. There's no protein that exists with that code, which means that the virus becomes defective. Or it means that just so happens that another protein called Bobby is made with the code ATTTC. Now suddenly, instead of having a protein called Sarah, the virus has a protein called Bobby and Bobby behaves a little bit different than Sarah. Whereas Sarah was able to infect people within an hour, Bobby is able to do it within a minute. And now we've got a variant that has proteins called Bobby in it that's able to infect people at a much quicker rate and much more easily. And that is what's happened in this case. We have a new variant which is able to um, infect people much quicker and we're seeing like higher transmission rates, right? But I've also said that viruses have like a plethora of different proteins that are all responsible for doing different things. We've said there's been a change from the protein called Sarah to a protein called Bobby. But all the other proteins, maybe um, Billy, maybe Gene, maybe whatever, all the other proteins look exactly the same. So Sarah, the Sarah to Bobby substitution is the only thing that's happened. And so there will only be a change in whatever that protein was responsible for doing in the first place, right? If we're saying Sarah was responsible for choosing how long it takes for, no. for you to get infected, then the only change that a variant will bring is how long it takes for you to get infected. Fortunately, in the variant that we found, there's not been a change in um, exactly how it infects you. And so it's not like you'll get more sick or you're more likely to die. There's not been a change in how it enters your cell, thankfully, which means that the protein that the whole vaccine is based on still looks the same in the old variant and the new variant, which means that the vaccine will still attack the old variant and the new variant in the same way. Um, And so the reason that I said, like, unfortunately for us, but fortunately for viruses is because we also have to copy our DNA, right? And when we make a mistake, 
it can have bad consequences. For example, like cancer in us. If we make a mistake in the protein that's responsible for controlling how quickly we make more cells and we make a mistake, that means that suddenly the copy machine is going crazy. It's going berserk. It's copying too fast. Then that now means we get overgrowth, which is what a cancer is, right? But for viruses, they intentionally have a copy machine that is much more slouchy than the human one. For humans, we want to be perfect. We want it to be perfect every time. We don't want mistakes because if we get mistakes, then we get problems, then we get disease. Right. For viruses, if they make mistakes, they might just make another virus that has that is able to have... Um, things that the population is not immune to because if this virus makes a mistake accidentally that changes the protein that the whole vaccine is based on it's made a new baby virus that now is able to infect all the people that that were immune to the old one right so viruses intentionally have slouchy machines so that they make more mistakes than our human machines would make so that they can create new variants of the virus, right? We have the virus number one, and then we have virus number two, then maybe it gets lucky and it's able to do what viruses are programmed to do to a much better extent, because that's all they want to do is infect us. And so the more mistakes, the more um, mutations we get, and the more likely that we end up stumbling on a mutation that somehow gives the virus an advantage that the predecessor didn't have. So that's why viruses mutate all the time. And that's why it's not surprising, actually, that we have a new variant. To be honest, there are probably lots of new variants of the virus because otherwise it would mean that COVID-19, since it started, has copied every single cell perfectly in every single person, every single time. That's really unlikely. Uh, viruses, I forgot um, what how many mistakes. It might be like one in one thousand, uh, one in five thousand copies. Sorry, we'll have a mistake in it. And we know now around the world, like every person makes lots and lots of copies. We know there have been many times of five thousand, right? So we anticipate many mistakes. Like I said, some of them will be non-viable. So some of them, like even if it makes a mistake, we just get a virus that doesn't that doesn't even work as a virus, right? But sometimes it will be a mistake that doesn't really change what the virus does. And sometimes it'll be a mistake that changes slightly what the virus does. And so viruses are supposed to mutate. If they didn't, then viruses wouldn't be able to do what viruses do. Um, And so that's how we stumble upon new variants. What I think has happened um, this case and why like this variant news is like spreading like wildfire um, is for two reasons. For one, COVID-19 has been well documented since the beginning. So anything that is discovered surrounding the topic of COVID-19 will be blasted on the news like crazy, right? Um, And for for two, sorry, I just forgot what second point I wanted to make. So so COVID-19 has been blasted on the news. Oh, for two, obviously, because we're trying to beat this virus at the moment, we're actively fighting a battle. The fact that this mutation has meant that it's able to infect people quicker means that we need to blast it on the news because there's even more reason why we now need to be on lockdown and be socially distant. But in terms of there being a new variant and people thinking like, oh my goodness, like this is not getting better, I would say don't panic unless the variant affects the vaccine, which in which case this one doesn't, because viruses, there are always variants of viruses, is what they're programmed to, to be like. They intentionally make mistakes so that they can make more different ones and hopefully get lucky and, and become better than their, their, their parent virus was, essentially. Um, 
man, you are so smart. You are so, <laughs> so smart, bro. Literally, like, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense, right? And would you say that it's a function of, like, density as well and, like, social mitigation? So if the social mitigation isn't as well, the mutation is probably more severe compared to uh, densities that aren't as, that mm. are more socially mitigated? Mm. Yeah, so th this interlinks, like right now, we're quite in a position to understand how, why that would make sense. Because we've said that the more times we copy something, the more opportunities the machine has to make a mistake, right? And so in any situation where we allow the virus to copy more times, then we encourage this process of mutating. Um, and so in a dense population, a virus would have the chance to copy itself more times because it's entered more people to copy itself more times. Because if it's only in one person, right? then yeah. it gets the chance to copy to the point that the body has already got immunity and starts to fight it. And then it can't copy anymore because it's be being destroyed. But if before its destruction point, it's able to jump in another person and start the whole cycle again and be in a person who's still taking two weeks before they have the destroying cells, then it has two weeks worth of copying. And so you can imagine in a dense population, it's able to jump from person to person and get a new two weeks, a new two weeks, a new two weeks. Whereas in a population where people are very much spread out, um, there are fewer opportunities to, to, to transmit and so uh, fewer opportunities to copy itself so many times and so fewer opportunities to make mistakes and mutate. Why should people of color uh, get the vaccine? And could you also talk about the person who created the vaccine and her story? Okay, so why should people of color get the vaccine? I almost feel like, why should any human um, gain immunity against a disease that, that's trying to infect us, right? Um, so I think like in terms of what are the pros of the vaccine, it protects yourself. So if you ever get infected, you don't know if you're going to be the type of person who is going to die from something like COVID-19. Getting the vaccine means that your body is ready to fight before it will ever get to a point that you're going to die. Because essentially for some people, if the body can't fight quick enough, then the, um, then the virus has an opportunity to reap havoc to a point where your body starts to shut down and potentially becomes fatal. So let me cut you off real quick. So mm -hmm. I'll say... Um, how How should people of color navigate superstitions of vaccines <laughs> and find the <laughs> confidence to take it? Obviously, yeah. and how can they use this interview to, to do that? Yeah, so I think like from what I've seen so far, a lot of the superstition that arises um, from the vaccine is people kind of spreading information that are half-truths or using scary words within science to scare people and really the only thing you can do is to essentially look for the definition of everything that you're being told if someone is telling you the vaccine is injecting a message because it's mrna yeah educate yourself on what mrna itself is and don't stop the story of what this person is telling you mrna is a message therefore you're being programmed say okay that's interesting i'm now going to look at what mrna actually is and try and understand what it actually does and make a decision for myself whether I consider that to be programming or whether I consider that to be building a natural immune response that I would build if I was infected with COVID-19 itself. So the single biggest thing I could say is to educate ourselves. And it sounds really simple, especially coming from someone who like studies science anyway. 
I, I, it's compulsory for me to, to read up on these things, right? So it's not really right. inconvenience to my life. In reality, every time we hear a new word or we hear a new concept, like we're not really prompted to investigate and, and find it skeptical. You know, if someone says, uh, water the plants and I've never owned a plant before, there's nothing in me that's going to say like, okay, let me find a definition of water, find a definition of plant and water it. So I can see how tempting it is to just hear things from other people like, it's a message that's going to like be encrypted into your DNA and program you. And like what in their mind would be triggered to, to make them skeptical about what they're hearing and research it. So I think to be honest, the only thing we can do is to find populations of people who are fearful, who are skeptical and we ourselves go out there and teach them and dispel the myths. Yeah. Um, things like what you're doing today, this podcast, for example, is, is a fantastic example of that. So it is really tricky. It's really tricky because if you yourself aren't someone who happens to be in a position to, to study it anyway, then unfortunately nothing in you would be triggered to not believe what other people might be saying. So yeah, I'm just, I just think it's really important that people have two voices uh, in their ear. You know, they, they have the voices, yeah. the skeptics who are kind of scaremongering, but then they also have the voices of people who offer the explanation of, of what's going on. And that's the simplicity, y'all. This is a T-Simple Podcast. I'm with the great Shirley Becker. She is from the UK. She is a medical professional. She is dropping the knowledge. I appreciate you so much for coming on the podcast. I hope no, you're tired. You've been really giving us a lot of good information that we're going to definitely take. And the most important thing, you kept it simple. You broke it down. And your teacher, I believe his name is Mr. Cassidy, he would be very proud of you. So shout out to your amazing teacher and shout out to you i appreciate it thank you everybody any last thing you want to say um i hope everyone just enjoyed the podcast and honestly if anyone was able to learn anything from this that that that, that that's kind of the aim that's my dream so i just want to say thank you again um for inviting me and and allowing you to speak on this on this platform and where can they find you what's some cool things you got going on um, so I think the most useful thing <laughs> that people can find at the moment, if anyone is interested in OBGYN related matters, then to find me on YouTube, Shirley Becker, um, and I'm creating videos to address those things at the moment. So if that's what you're interested in, then definitely have a look at those videos. Oh my God, that's amazing. Thank you so much. All right, thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it.